three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the first formal episode of the podcast. I have here with me a good friend of mine from UC Davis. How's it going, Ethan? It's going great, buddy. Um, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm I'm Justin. Ethan and I have been uh, kicking it since I guess middle school. And uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yep. So I'm 22 years old, Cali boy. Um, yeah, just graduated from UC Davis. So trying to find my place in the world now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Um, a quick little thing about Justin. He was the first friend that I made uh, at my middle school. He, um, <laughs> he and I were sat next to each other in Mr. Andrew's geography class. <laughs> if you remember that. I do remember that, of course. Yeah, I just yeah. remember being like, wow, this dude is super smart. I'm glad that I'm sitting next to this guy. Ethan's Ethan's definitely flattering me here, but I'll have to say that, yeah, if first friends in middle school, hopefully, uh, you know, it's a good first episode of the of the podcast. And I will oh. say that that Ethan definitely has a an unrivaled commitment to uh, putting in the work to understand culture from literature, music, movies. And so I've always appreciated that about you, Ethan. And so I'm hopefully that, uh, hopefully I can, I can live up to the billing here on this first episode. Wow, man. Thank you so much. Like, um, I mean, I try like that's, um, that's what this is all about is talking about the things I'm passionate with about, um, talking the things I love and talking with the people I love. So I'm glad you're here, buddy. I appreciate it, man. All right. So today we're talking about Steely Dan. Um, it's a very complex band to talk about. Um, they're from the 70s. They are probably best described as a jazz rock fusion band, but they are so much more than that. <laughs> oh yeah i think that they uh are. i mean honestly like it's hard to really categorize them in a in a single genre i would say they really are they have too many influences and they make music over such an important period of time of Mer of american music that to classify them as one thing would be very difficult to do and a little bit disingenuous to the kind of message that they're spreading in their music as well. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So this uh, Steely Dan, it's ultimately a project of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. They were um, originally New York musicians that met, um, but before making any real name for themselves, they moved out to L.A., um, and later really ingrained themselves in the Los Angeles studio mus musician scene. Um, they had um, a fair number of projects that they worked on and wrote for before Steely Dan was really their first project that they did together their, um, of their own sort of work. Um, 
And I, I think it's really interesting that uh, Steely Dan, even though that they spent much of their time in New York and a lot of um, the subjects that they touch upon are very multicultural, um, both in terms of um, the populations in New York and in L.A., but they seem to be ultimately Los Angeles musicians. I could see that. I could see that. I mean, you definitely get the New York influence in a lot of the lyrics and stuff. I mean, um, I feel like the the lyric that, that stands out to me, you got on Deacon Blues, like they're talking about going through this uh, slick city streets. Uh, you get a lot of that kind of kind of old East Coast feel in some of their songs. But then, yeah, on the flip side, they do have a little bit of that California sound in them. Like uh, on the flip side, you got on Kid Charlemagne, you know, Donald's talking about, you know, the Los Angeles Hills and stuff. I, I believe he is. So, um, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of that Laurel Canyon influence, but um, they're definitely, yeah, they bring the best of both coasts, I think. I think so as well. I think what's really fascinating about Steely Dan is that they make the music they want to make and the way they want to make it. It's entirely their own. They get the people on the project that they want. Um, so something before we go too deep into this to understand about Steely Dan is their roster is ever changing. It's yeah. completely fluid um, yep. apart from their touring era. Um, but even then that has some movement, but uh, they're more interested in trying to find the best person for the job, writing compositions for that person to play. And I think that's super interesting because that's very much so like what an interaction with a famous playwright and a famous uh, theater actor would do. You build up a relationship over amount of time, you become close, you want to work professionally, and that really seems to be the greatest honor that you can give any sort of artist is having them work on a project that you have for them and them alone. I think that's super interesting about Steely Dan. That has to be one of the craziest aspects of Steely Dan is the fact that you literally almost don't even have a band. You're, it's basically just, you know, Donald and Walter and yeah. then a collection of whoever the hell they want in the studio with them. Right. So like, you know, you have, I mean, guys like Jeff Picaro, Larry Carlton. I mean, even get on when you get to Gaucho, you have on time out of mind, you have, um, uh, what's his face from dire straits. You have, um, uh, now his name slipping my mind, but, uh, shoot. Well, I'll come back to it later, but the, uh, the guitarist from yeah, dire Stra Mar Mark Knopfler, Mark Knopfler, you have oh, Mark okay. Knopfler. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, you know, you mention this kind of relationship they have with, with their studio musicians and stuff. I mean, it's crazy because they're so committed to making the sound right that, you know, you have tracks where they barely even appear on it at all. And it's, so yeah, it's, ve they're, they're very clearly chasing the right sound rather than the credit of, you know, I want to do everything, you know? Yeah. 
they have such a healthy mentality when it comes to music. Um, I was reading a, I believe it was a Rolling Stone article yesterday. They were interviewing them about some of their more famous tracks. And they were talking about, I believe it was um, Do It Again. Mm -hmm. And um, Donald was like, that song is such a bore to play. I can't stand it. <laughs> like they are, even with their own music, they're so um, satirical and critical and it doesn't come across as um, an unhealthy amount of self-deprecation. It just seems like they're just honest to goodness, just good dudes, honest yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. You know, like the fact that they're so sardonic, so, you know, like you said, sarcastic and everything. But the thing is, is that I don't think that their music is written to bring people down. It almost, it almost feels like, if anything, they're more recognizing the fact that they're already down. So why not make light of it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like we definitely live in a time, and especially in our current circumstances, where there's a whole lot wrong with the world, and it's very easy to feel bad about it, and just, excuse me, and just uh, kind of lay in your own filth and just kind of absorb all that cynicism and uh, distrust and a lack of hope and just kind of stew in it but i think the natural progression from being so disheartened in the world not seeing any purpose in it the next step is well if there is no reason why not make the best of it and yeah. i see that so clearly in steely dan oh yeah oh yeah no i i definitely agree with that I think that uh, even compared to the others in their genre, you know, I mean, you can call it whatever you want, like Blue-Eyed Soul or Yacht Rock or whatever, but the other guys in that genre are mostly kind of wallowing in kind of the, you know, the misery of heartbreak and all that kind of stuff. And, and don't yeah. get me wrong, I love those artists too. Like, I love all the Blue-Eyed Soul guys, but Steely Dan kind of sets itself apart there because they really don't take their situation too seriously. They kind of just, you know, embrace the ridiculousness of it. And, you know, they definitely don't sit in heartbreak. You, I feel like you see very few songs from Steely Dan that are, you know, about the traditional, you know, heartbreak, love song kind of situations, you know? And even when they are, the lyrics are so much more cryptic and weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm... Um, like Ricky don't lose that number. It's talking about yep. this this girl that doesn't want anything to do with him. But he's still like infatuated with her. Yeah, I'm, I what came to mind for me was on Bad Sneakers, which is I believe mm, Michael yeah. McDonald's first song with them. I you'd have to check me on that, but I think it's his first song with them. It's off of Katie Lied. And it's one yeah, of my yeah. favorites cuz it starts with you know, he says uh uh, there are three names I can uh, hardly stand to hear. 
including yours and mine and one more chip who isn't here. <laughs> I, I, I just, oh, I man. think that's pretty good, you know? It really is. But I feel so like that's where... About... Go, oh, sorry, go, go for ahead. it. No, no, go for it. Um, I, I was just going to say, um, let's talk about more of the... Uh, a couple last things before we get into um, the real meat and start talking about the albums specifically. So I wanted to bring up... Um, if you haven't heard of Steely Dan, um, one is just one more thing to add to the ridiculous of the artist. Their name comes from the name of a dildo in a magazine that they saw, which is <laughs> just such a hilarious thing. Like what, what sort of artist would would do Ste- that? Especially steam powered, I era. believe. Yeah, <laughs> it was mechanical, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think their, their appeal is if you like, um, the lyricism of Bob Dylan, um, if you like the, the sort of, um, and this changes over time, but the, the rock elements of the Eagles, like the grand scale, um, the flair of funk or the pace of jazz, all of those things together kind of figure out a way of turning themselves into what Steely Dan ended up being. Oh yeah. No, definitely. They they, they combine a lot into one time. package. Yeah, they really are. Um their influences are anything from bluegrass and rock and jazz and R and B and folk music even and definitely funk. And what's crazy is, you know, you get kind of a, I'm sure they were, and I feel like I've heard this anecdotally through a bunch of interviews and stuff, but I'm pretty sure they were pretty demanding in the studio. And yet it comes across so natural and so, you know, organic, even though I'm sure it's so precise. Yeah. I, the technicality of the people that they, have playing with them i'm sure for the time is nearly unparalleled like they're having the people play with them that are playing on all the top musicians of the era yep yeah it makes you miss real drums (laughs) (laughs) yeah honestly um i have never heard punchier um hard-hitting drums Yep. in songs than what stand out in Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. You got the best. You got Jeff Picaro, Steve Gadd. I mean, they, they're like, you know, they, I mean, their work, not just with Steely Dan, but, you know, with Boz Gags and, and those kind of artists, too, that almost, I mean, it's definitely a timeless feel to their sound, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And one one word I would like to describe Steely Dan as is stylish. If I could, if I could <laughs> yeah, only I like have that. one. I like that. I was trying to think of of a few. And the first one that came to mind was sexy, honestly. Because the <laughs> sound 
the sound it's very sensual it's very yeah makes you want to dance it's it's very hard to describe unless because their music is so unique it's hard to describe um without hearing it for yourself what this means but if you do for good or for ill it's fairly sensual yeah i'd say slick slick is another one that you can put in there i think that definitely pretty accurately describes them i think um what's important about steely dan too is you you can't level criticism on them of oh they're just in it for the money or their shills they if (laughs) those guys could have made so much more money (laughs) by selling out and just writing pop songs for popular artists of which they started out doing and then quit to start steely dan yeah well especially because you have i mean you know that's a good point is you, you could have seen them writing songs for other people because i mean you know love donald fagan it's not the most traditional voice in the world but yeah it's just like the fact that it just feels so much more real when he sings it it's just yeah there's that that balance it, for sure between... i think there's a special connection when you're writing the lyrics and also singing the you know doing the vocals i like, agree it's yeah. kind of different than if if you're writing for someone else and then I mean the person that ends up singing it really doesn't have, you know, that emotional connection, connection to, to what they're saying. Exactly. You know? Because imagine if um Jimmy Page wrote the lyrics <laughs> for all the Zeppelin yeah. songs. Like yeah. like he's a great musician, but we wouldn't have nearly the vocal performances that we did have yeah. if Jimmy wrote it, you know? Yeah. Well and the thing is, like, I mean, you know, I would say that, that, you know, Fagan has a more traditional voice than, say, you know, someone like Bob Dylan, but I would still liken it to Bob Dylan in the fact that, I mean, even though Bob Dylan doesn't have the most traditionally, you know, good singing voice, I mean, you just have that special element there that, that you know, makes it irreplaceable. You know, I couldn't, I can't even imagine someone else singing, you know, some of Bob Dylan's lyrics. Yeah. That's, um, Bob Dylan definitely has a special place in my heart of someone who, um, is so frank and honest and, um, he has, holds art in such a high regard in his music. And yet, he plays harmonica on John Wesley Harding so bad. <laughs> he gets better. He gets better on later albums. Um, I'm pretty sure Blood on the Tracks came af- after that one, and his harmonica playing is much better on that album. But oh my gosh. Like, uh, I, have, I have this conversation all the time with, um, with Hayden and Daniel, which are two of our other mutual friends. Um of what the best version of all along the watchtower is between oh it's dylan 100 and dylan i agree with you and um i i honestly think that the bad harmonica playing is um more of an addition than it is a subtraction to the song 
Yeah. I think it adds to the haunting lyrics, the really strange um, singing that he has, obviously. And it just mm-hmm. pierces through the very simplistic playing that's happening. It's a very unique sound. And I can understand why people don't like it. But for me personally, that's one of my favorite Dylan songs on one of my favorite Dylan albums. Oh, yeah. I think honestly, and yeah, I always, you know, I find a lot of people that disagree with me on the on the Dylan version being better than the Hendrix version, which obviously both versions are great, but I definitely side yeah. side with the Dylan version. And also, I, I mean, the one song that I can think of as the exception to this where I do think it it's close for me on on which version is better is some of the versions of Knocking on Heaven's Door, the Clapton version, and honestly the Jerry Garcia version are both incredible. And the the Jerry Garcia version in particular is just like a obviously with everything Grateful Dead it go it turns into this like 9 minute jam session. And so, <laughs> you know, I can't get enough of that song. So the longer it goes the better it is in my book. So I, that's the one exception well, I think are, where <laughs> they're also the jam band though, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one exception I can think of where, where a Dylan song has rivals in terms of the covers of it. But, but other than that, you know, yeah, I think I'll I have think, to check that one out because I, I haven't heard that version of it, but I have, yeah, heard no, it's pretty version. great. But, uh, let's get back to, uh, Steely Dan though. Um, they start out with incredibly, and I want to do a follow-up podcast about this idea in the future. Their debut album's a hit. It comes out in yep. 1972. It has, um, two hit singles. I think both of them land in the top 10. I think one was at four and one was at six and that was do it again. And, um, reeling in the years. Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, you know, it's that album's pretty different than their than their later albums, but I mean, still just some great stuff and it it definitely hints at or alludes to what you're going to hear later from them when when they evolve and kind of, you know, uh progress as as artists, but I mean, it's a great start to their discography. Like like you said, there's some real there's some real great songs on that album. Uh, personally for me, Dirty Work and Midnight Cruiser are yep. both great as Steely Dan songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I think both of those work in the way that what you were saying is th- those two, especially for me, are giving you hints of what's to come. Because yeah. Reeling in the Years is, to me, almost like a Beach Boys song. It's very poppy. <laughs> um I may be totally off base about that, but that's always been my impression of one of the least Steely Dan, Steely Dan songs. Yeah. Um, it is good and it's super catchy. It's, um, it's totally a, a song made for radio. Yep. I think lyrically it alludes a little bit to what they're going to do later. It kind of has that, I don't know. It kind of has that, cool in being uncool kind of feel to it where you know it's talking about you know uh you know your everlasting summer fading fast and uh, you're kind of realizing that you're not you know 
I, I'm not sure. I think it has. I think it has some connection to their later work, but it definitely is is within a very pop, um, you know, shell essentially. Yeah. Um, the song that on "Can't Buy a Thrill" that really uh, sticks out to me as something that that strongly alludes to their later work is "Only a Fool Would Say That," because I think both musically and lyrically you get hints of the future work in there hmm. i could see that i could see that um one interesting thing about this album um so they obviously um we call them like these paragons of studio musicians but the first three albums that they come out with and the first three years that they're making music as a band, they're also touring. They have a yeah. tour after this first album and it is a nightmare. It is full <laughs> of all kinds of problems. Um, and Donald Fagan, who is the vocalist on a lot of the album, um, isn't comfortable with singing during this tour. He's got... Um, I'm pretty sure they... Uh, they cite it as anxiety problems. He he was just That's super, crazy. super nervous about all this. And understandably so. Yeah. Well, like we said earlier, I mean, he he's not the most traditional voice out there, but I mean, mm -hmm. literally, like, you know, I'm sure that's, that's tough to overcome, but then, I mean, you know, you just got to recognize that there's just something special there with his voice. And I think the bandmates knew that too because um, they have someone else come in for part of the tour. His name was David Palmer um, to do the vocals. But later, um, his bandmates insisted upon him um, becoming the the front man vocally. And um, he relented. And that's um, I think that's really cool of his bandmates recognizing that yeah, he probably needed a, a little bit of a kick in the ass to get yeah. up there. Um, he has such were... a swagger to him too when he's behind that piano. It's crazy. Like, I mean, you just stick him behind the keys and he just, he has a real definite presence and a real swagger to him, at least now. Of course, that could have been different on that first tour, but I mean, just seeing it now, I, he definitely has a swagger to him. Absolutely. Do you... um? Do you have a whole lot to say about um, what you think that this album, in your opinion, did to the like its impact on the music scene? Um, what what kind of um, what kind of landing it had? You know, I don't think I have enough historical basis on that to really to really give a good insight, but. I mean, like we touched on, like, I think that it definitely laid the groundwork for what was to come. And certainly the overall influence um, was only going to become stronger with time. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I have really the basis to, to really touch on the, the historical impact. Yeah, I, I was trying to be careful about how much time I was spending on this because I knew that I could easily spend dozens of hours looking through um 
all of their other contemporaries who are making music, all like yeah. looking into all the people that they were working with and their other projects. And I knew that um, if we were just kind of have a, a frank talk about what we think is cool about listening to Steely Dan, what we like about it, that stuff isn't really that important. Um, yeah. But after Can't Buy a Thrill, which is a commercial and critical success, we get to, I'd probably say, the black sheep of their discography, <laughs> which is Countdown to Ecstasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's understandable because I don't like this album very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that even the band has, I mean, not disowned it, but they said, they've come out and said that in the past that, that it wasn't there their best work they felt i think i think you can hear that in interviews and stuff yeah i'm not sure what happened um i couldn't say i wasn't there <laughs> but yeah I've, i if i read correctly somewhere i think they said they were rushed because of all the touring mm -hmm. and everything i can i can imagine because if you have if you're a record company and you have this band who makes it big after their first album two of their songs crack the top 10 on yeah. billboard you want to get them out on their next album and tour Need as that sequel possible to make as much money yep no definitely uh, but yeah, so I, I can totally understand i honestly don't have a whole lot of great things to say about this album <laughs> um when i was so i i listened to their whole discography over the past two days re-listening uh -huh. to it in order Countdown to Ecstasy was, oh man, I don't want to say it, but it's almost a chore. It's <laughs> because you know what great stuff is to come and you know, yeah. um, you know the highlights. And so something that unfortunately falls kind of flat like this album, um, it's kind of a shame. I can understand why people like this album. Um, I'm sorry. I can understand if people like this album, I don't necessarily can understand why people like this album. Um, <laughs> but it is an unfortunate, I'm sure, um, situation they had on their hands. For artists like these, they do not like releasing anything but the best that they can produce. Yeah. Um, so this album is kind of a shame. Um, but I do have a whole lot more to talk about Pretzel Logic if you're interested in uh that one more definitely yeah let's let's go to pretzel logic all right so pretzel logic came out in 74 so each of these albums are coming out every year uh <laughs> that's and insane. this is the last yeah which is insane this is the last album that they have their initial band roster on as well after mm -hmm. this it's going to start changing quite a bit because after this they're going to stop touring Yeah, I think I think uh, Pretzel Logic is a nice bookend to this era of Steely Dan um, because it's I it's got agree. some it's got some great songs on it, especially those first couple. You just oh man, yep, Night by Night, Ricky Don't Lose Your n That Number, um, yeah, no, it's got some great ones. I um, I am really impressed by this album. It seems so much more jazz influenced 
than their previous two. It seems like this album um, creates the strong foundation that Steely, need, Steely Dan needs going forward of what to expect from them sonically. Yeah. Yeah, you get, I mean, yeah, if we just even, even just stopping at night by night, you get some of those guitar licks that are very, I think, become more prominent, you know, even on Royal Scam or, or Gaucho or, I'm trying to think, maybe, maybe not so much in, in Asia, but, but I mean, you know, it definitely is a nice segue to that next, that next step for them. Absolutely. Um, I was talking to to Justin a little bit about this yesterday, trying to figure out the logistics and just gushing a little bit about Stealing Dan because we can't help ourselves. Um, but we were talking <laughs> about this album, and um, I told him that I thought that the the middle of the album sags a little bit, but with the the first three and the last four songs are amazing. Um, I believe it's yep. this one. Um, yeah, Ricky Don't Lose That Number and Night by Night. Even any major dude will tell you those songs oh, are Oh, that's great. a good one. That's a good one. Um, and then the last four, beginning with the title track, um, are just a sprint to the end of the album. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love those songs, which are Pretzelogic with a gun, Charlie Freak, and Monkey in Your Soul. Yeah, that's a strong finish to the album. They really did. So I'm quite amazed that they had um, this showing with their original group amidst knowing that these are songs they're going to have to tour with. Um, these are songs that they can't spend that much time in the studio with because um, of touring. Um, so I, I think this album is very very impressive for the logistical problems that i'm sure they would have had to face being a touring band well and it's crazy because it's such a bounce back after countdown to ecstasy that and yeah and what's ridiculous about it too is it's not just a rebound i mean like you got the rebound and then you went coast to coast and just dunked the ball basically because after that really i mean you don't have another dip in quality in any of their next albums. So it's like, you know, I mean, it's more than just a bounce back. It's like a, you know, it, it really it, makes it countdown to ecstasy look like a blip, you know? Yeah. It, it would be heretical to say that the next four albums that come out after this are anything but masterpieces. And of I'll course, say even a varying quality, but I, um, I know that we, I know that we moved on from countdown to ecstasy, but I will say this, that when you have people that are as talented as Fagan and Becker and the people that they were working with on this album, even if it's subpar compared to their standards, I still think it's better than, you know, a lot of music out there. So I would say that... No, certainly. That, it's not yeah. bad music. It's just bad Steely Dan. Yeah, it's a different standard. Yeah, no, it really is. If bad Steely Dan is still like a... Five out of ten, six <laughs> out of ten, then yeah. you yeah. know, like you're you're sitting pretty. Yeah. Oh, you could do a lot worse than than Countdown to Ecstasy for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, I've listened to a lot worse, certainly. Yeah, uh, but compared to Pretzel Logic, yeah, it, it, Pretzel Logic is a big step up. But after Pretzel Logic, we get to them deciding they're stepping away from touring. They're going to focus on uh, the quality of their sound, the integrity of their music. And from here on out, I personally feel each album is a step up from the previous album, with the exception of two, which I'll mention. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, we talked about the fact that I've always told you that that Gaucho was my favorite album, but I honestly think this next one, Royal Scam, has kind of replaced Gaucho for me as my favorite Steely Dan album. I just think they hit a peak here that is like, I don't know, maybe on a personal level, personal level I just like it better, but I mean, I I think Royal Scam is insane. It is, but we're also forgetting about one. We're forgetting about Katie Lied, man. Oh, shoot. I forgot about Katie Lied. That's right. That's our next one. That's so true. Yeah, I forgot about that, Katie Lied. I, I'd really like to say that I feel like Katie Lied is the Sergeant Pepper of Steely Dan. <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. Um, Because... Uh, the Beatles, for anyone who, who doesn't know, they decided to step away from touring because their fan base was so insane that no one could hear the music over everyone screaming in joy throughout <laughs> all of their songs so constantly that the music quality was non-existent because no one could hear anything. They decided to step away from touring and then they release an album with one of the most iconic and influential album arts of all time. Yep. And the first album, um, and someone can correct me on this, but I believe the first album to ever put the lyrics on um, the sleeve for the album. Oh, interesting. I did not know so that. So they were really taking a complete 180 and deciding this sucks, but it's the best for our audience because we yeah. really care about the music itself. It's not about just money because the Beatles, I'm sure, were making an enormous amount of money touring. <laughs> you yeah. make way more money touring than you do by record sales, even back then when record sales were um, a much higher por proportion of your income as an artist. Yeah. Well, I'd say too, I mean, I, if I'm remembering my history right here, I believe that Sgt. Pepper was kind of a direct answer to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. And I mean, if you want to talk about studio musicianship, I mean, Pet Sounds, you know, Brian Wilson, you know, I, I can't quite remember the timeline of it, but, you know, obviously he was going through a lot of stuff. And he basically wasn't touring with the band and he was basically just in the studio. I think they just kind of left him there while they toured. And, you know, he's coming up with all this brilliant stuff. I mean, he's bringing animals into the studio and, you know, I mean, there you get the namesake of pet sounds, but I mean, yeah. you want to talk about 
genius in the studio, uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper was the direct answer to a brilliant studio album. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, enough about the Beatles and the Beach Boys, though. <laughs> Katie lied. So it's unfortunate that you you <laughs> you jumped the gun and went to Royal Scam because yeah. <laughs> um, that album is incredible. But this one isn't one to forget about either. No, no. So this one did you got Doctor Wu on there. It does have Doctor Wu in it. It also has Bad Sneakers. Bad Sneakers, yep. That's a great. It's a great album. I can't believe I forgot about that. I think I got my, I think I got my timeline mixed up a little bit, but. but yeah, yeah, this is this is their first um, studio album. Yeah, and it's a great one. It is a great one. And um, to keep in perspective, everyone, these albums are still coming out annually, which is <laughs> incredible. That the work ethic of these guys, and now they're they're getting all sorts of people. So they're dealing with ten people's different um, schedules with all these albums now, if not more, of all these artists that they're having playing. On um, I don't believe it's Katie Lied, but I believe in Royal Scam. Um, they're having multiple drummers. They're having uh, multiple piano players. Um, yeah. They're having like um, obviously multiple singers and guitarists or whatever, but they're really trying to build up their sound. Um, they're adding a lot of brass, um, of which they had some already. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting turning point in their... Um, in their career and it's and there are some hit or misses um but the hits are phenomenal and the misses are more just forgettable um yeah not as much as like um a finger in your eye it's just like ah oh, just get this one no big deal yeah yeah i mean i definitely agree with the fact that you get more of that I mean, you touched on the brass instruments and stuff. I mean, you get more of that soul influence, I think, starting here. And I mean, even, you know, I think I touched on it earlier, but, you know, you get your first appearance of Michael McDonald on this album. And obviously he brings a lot to the table in terms of blue-eyed soul. Um, I mean, his stuff with the doobies, his solo stuff. And I mean, you know, he does so many backing vocals on so many soul hits of that day that i mean it it does mark a turning point for them i think and they're starting to begin a a turning point in fagan's vocal performances i believe starting here as well it becomes way more apparent in the royal scam than the rest of their albums i would say but he's really coming into his own he's becoming much more comfortable um his performances are becoming a little bit more daring um and i believe that katie lied is ultimately the setup for our next album yeah no i think it lays a good groundwork um but yeah it's 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 definitely an amazing record if you're going through 
um, and you're a Steely Dan fan, but you've only listened to Gaucho, Asia, Can't Buy a Thrill, Royal Scam, don't forget about this one. Which I almost did, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, for, it's you, a forgivable you offense. You some of the songs, though, <laughs> yeah, before, so you're good. That's true, that's true. But this is the man of the hour now, huh? This is the Royal yep. Scam, 1976. Let's get to it. Yep. Before we really get into it, though, I just want to say it's really hard for me to pick out individual songs to talk about because it feels like it's hit after hit. The album doesn't linger. It doesn't sag. Um, it feels like the running of the bulls through this album. It's yep. it's hard to give a whole lot of criticism to this album and a little bit for sure is personal taste. Um, but a lot of it is a testament to um, the pace and the technical skill and the um, daring decisions that they made on this album. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's, steely dan at potentially their finest 100 percent. i mean literally you touched on the fact that it's like you know there's not a dull moment and i really think that's true i mean even i think you know the last song royal scam is like i mean it's a pretty long song i think it's i don't think it's quite 10 minutes but it's a pretty long one and and i have no trouble just sitting through the whole thing and just jamming away on it like it's just it's great to listen to some of the later songs on the album like Haitian divorce and you know they're just you know usually you know if you're going to stack the front of the album as hard as they did here you know the later songs are going to lag a little bit but I don't think that's the case at all with Royal Scam I totally agree and this album too a lot of their earlier albums their songs are very different in terms of time they'll be um two minute two and a half minute three minute three and a half minute, four minute, maybe a one five minute song on the album. Mm -hmm. This album, the shortest song is three minutes and 34 seconds. <laughs> and the average is probably around four, four fifteen. The last song is six minutes and 31 seconds. Okay. So that's the runtime on, on Royal Scam. Yeah. I was, yeah. was going to say, I, I know it's a long song, but. And it's not an outlier. Haitian Divorce is also 5 minutes and 51 seconds. Like, Which just goes by like a breeze, though. It really does. Um, and it's so strange because I've criticized... Um, I've had criticisms for previous albums of them sagging in the middle. Or sometimes I feel like Steely Dan's a, a little bit indulgent. And their <laughs> sound lingers a little bit like just a little bit of excess fat on the album that could have been trimmed or replaced but that is not the case on this album at all yeah yeah and i mean literally like you know the album is definitely i mean those those first few songs it's so front-loaded but then or at least you think it's going to be front-loaded and then it just keeps going and it's the whole album like the whole album's just great because and this is something um, I wanted to touch at the end, but a sneak peek at Steely Dan. 
I, I don't know how they do this, but every single album, they put their killer song as number one. Like their best performing song is always their first song on the album. Can't buy a thrill. It's do it again, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Royal Scam is, is Kid Charlemagne. Oh, Asia a- is Black Cow, which you could say that or Asia are um, the contenders, but they're right next to each other. And also Asia is like a eight minute song. So that's not really a radio play song. Yeah. Um, Katie lied had, um, had black Friday, which is still mm-hmm. a good song. Yep. Um, let's see. Pretzel logic had Ricky. Don't lose that number, which is probably yeah, we top also- five most iconic songs. I forgot to mention on Pretzel Logic too how good of a song Barrytown is also. Oh, absolutely. That's a great one. But anyway, keep going, sorry. Um no that that's like I there's just something about Steely Dan. They're just they're so keenly aware of what's gonna hit and what's not. Yeah. Um even as such a unique band that they are. I think that there's something to be said about that too, where if you know what songs are going to hit, it shows how much of an understanding you have of just music in general, I think. Because what comes to mind with that is like a guy like Danny Elfman, you know, who considers himself a super serious musician and, you know, basically says that Oingo Boingo is a joke. But, you know, Oingo Boingo has some great pops, 80s pop songs. And so if you can just make killer 80s pop songs, you know, on a whim like he can, then that shows that you know music inside and out if it's easy for you to make pop songs. I totally agree. But one thing about Danny Elfman is he went from working with Oingo Boingo to working with Tim Burton. So is there really that much of a step up? (laughs) The thing is, and you know what's the crazy thing is though you say that, but I love Tim Burton's early films. I love Edward Scissorhands and some of that early stuff. I mean, I, I have yet to see Ed Wood. I need to see Ed Wood, but it's, I mean, you know, I just think that it always impresses me that Danny Elfman, you know, is a composer and he just, he just basically effortlessly does some great, you know, new wave sounding 80s pop hits just you know, and he doesn't even like he doesn't even like his own music. He thinks it's so easy to do, you know. And they're great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that uh, that's a my... that's a tangent. But just to say that that yeah, yeah. musicians like Steely Dan that know what makes a great pop song usually have a good understanding of more sophisticated songs as well. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, but um but back to Royal Scam though. The um, it's it is really hard to pick out um, the most standout songs because Kid Charlemagne's amazing. Yep. Don't take me alive. That's the third song on this album. My favorite um, song. I on the really album. really love that album. I mean that song. Yeah. Um, That's my Fez, favorite song on the album great. for sure. Um, Green Earrings is probably the worst song on the album. If I had to pick one. <laughs> It's a great Green song live, okay. though, from what I've seen in the concerts. Like They, they See, do it in their concerts pretty well. Okay. I haven't seen them live. Um, 
or even like a I, I have not either live. for the record, but I've watched a lot of concerts online. <laughs> okay. And I haven't listened to any of their live records either. Oh, you have to listen to a live in America. It's great. Okay. I will. But also, um, yeah, speaking of, this is a bit of a spoiler warning for the end of the show. Um, I haven't listened to their, I believe, 2000 release and 2003 release. Oh, uh, neither have I. Yeah. Two Against Nature, Two Against right? Nature and Everything Must Go. Yeah, I haven't listened to either of those, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I have a weird, or maybe not so weird, maybe it's a fairly reasonable stance of I don't want to taint my view of this artist coming back from a 20 year hiatus to their yeah. music. Yeah. I feel that um typically artists when they're making records every year for a good number of years what ends up happening is their last couple are so strong that no project that comes decades later will have anywhere close to touching. Nope. And you have a lot of outside factors that influence it too. I mean, if you build up such a reputation and then have such a long hiatus, you're going to feel so pressured from all sides to deliver like yeah. a crazy product. And the truth is you might just not be in that that phase of your life anymore where you can, you know, really replicate that. I'm sure there's still great albums. Um in terms of music, I saw that one of them won a Grammy. Um, I think oh, there it you was go. Everything Must Go. It won Album of the Year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll have to which, listen to it then. <laughs> yeah. Which how none of their other stuff did, I have no clue. Um, yeah. But this I'll is tell also you, in terms a very of, difficult period. In terms of recent work, another one that I would recommend is a live touring album, I guess they put together. It was Fagan, Michael McDonald and Boz Skaggs. And they called themselves the Dukes of September. And they were fantastic. I mean, they did a lot of their old songs and, uh, you know, some covers, I think also. And I mean, just to see those three guys together, you know, it, it was, it was pretty cool. So if you have the chance to check that out as well, definitely check out the Dukes of September. Yeah, will do. Um, I'm just about good to wrap up on Royal Scam and then we can get to the dark side of the moon <laughs> of Steely Dan. The, um, what would you say? The Out of the Blue of Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. Um, the album that um, has the most wide appeal but yeah. yet is not my personal favorite. And I don't know if that's the hipster in me coming out, <laughs> which I despise, but it's just not my taste. But I can totally understand why people love it. Yeah. Oh, it's got some, I mean, it's still got some great tracks on it. It's just, yeah, I've I've always felt the same way about it is that, you know, I I just don't personally connect to it the way I do with Gaucho or Royal Scam. But of course, yeah, still great. It is great. It's definitely held in very high regard. Um, 
it has great songs on it. Um, we already said Black Cow and Asia. Um, uh, Deacon Blues is also great. Um, it. Josie. Got to mention kinda, Josie in there too. Yeah, that's the last one, right? Yeah. Um, it steps it up from, um, from their previous record in terms of the time that they're spending on each of these songs. Um, I'm looking at it here. The smallest is four minutes flat and the average is probably close to five minutes and 45 seconds with two songs over seven minutes. (laughs) Which, uh, I mean, is... I'm trying to think is is Peg one of those? Or no, um, Peg's probably no, a shorter Peg, one, huh? Peg's short. It's Asia's eight minutes. Deacon Blues right. is seven minutes and thirty six seconds. Deacon Blues is seven minutes. Yeah, it doesn't talk seem about that a song long. that flies by. Yeah, that's oh just a gosh. testament to how great some of these songs are. When I mean, Deacon Blues feels like, like two minutes. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. That's a Deacon Blues might be my favorite song on that album. Yeah, I think so. Either that or or Black Cow for me, probably. Yeah, Black Cow is such a strong start. Yeah. Well, here you um, really again, back get back to that idea. The idea of what? Oh no! Back to that idea of they always put a killer song as the oh, first song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I and I think that you get a little bit more East Coast vibe here. In addition to, I think you get an East Coast vibe on Pretzel Logic, and I think you get an East Coast vibe on Asia. I can see that. I can totally see that. Um, Because once we get to Gaucho, which is much more South American style. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. Gaucho feels Southwestern. Yeah. Which is strange because they recorded that album in New York. Like they returned (laughs) to New York for that album, and yet. Uh-huh. So many of these other albums are very much so feeling like um, like odes to New York, but yet they go yeah. back to New York and then they make an album that's hey, the grass is always greener, right? Like you know, exactly. When you're in LA, maybe you're missing New York. When you're in New York, you're missing LA. Who knows? That's honestly what it seems like because that's like what happens with their music. Yeah. Um, so we can stop hitting uh, around the bush here. Gaucho, 1980. It's three years after Asia in 77. They're, I'm pretty sure there were um, logistical problems around this that were happening. It was either like contract disputes or there's just some, some strangeness. But yeah. um, in their bio on their website, which Justin recommended me to read, in which it's I a great bio. Else interested, um, it's phenomenal. It's super funny, and they say um, when they return to New York, they're now heartsick and drained by the shallow excesses of Tinseltown, which Tinseltown <laughs> is uh, L.A. Which man, they are they are so keenly aware of themselves, of the the culture around them, um, obviously in their music, but even just in their writing of themselves. 
yeah, they have a huge self-awareness to them. And, and yeah, no, I think that comes through both in their music and, you know, like you mentioned the bio, I think when they write about themselves and stuff too, like they definitely have like a down to earthness that, uh, really makes them pretty lovable. (laughs) Absolutely. When people are so genuine, like they are, it's hard not to love them. Um, which is which is ironic because they're so sarcastic and they're so yeah you know but it really does come through as authentic and you can just see right through it to an endearing nature you know that's the um that's kind of the rub of steely dan is um they are such a clashing of things of um of jazz and rock, um, all of these soft influences of emotional influences of the blues, R and B, um, influences of Motown and funk. It's really, um, wild that these people who are both, um, authentic and sarcastic at the same time, um, they're able to find a way to pair these things together, to bring these things together and make it their own and make it Steely Dan. No, absolutely. One of a kind. One of a kind. Absolutely. Um, so Gaucho and Royal Scam, um, we've both agree that um, these are their two strongest records. Um, I think so. I I've been ping-ponging back and forth between Gaucho and Royal Scam. It's really hard to pick one. Um, The only thing that makes me want Gaucho over Royal Scam is that Babylon Sisters is probably my favorite Steely Dan song of all time. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it is cool. It is cool song. And it's five minutes and 54 seconds. Another one that just flies by. It it doesn't feel like it lingers. It breezes by. Um, this whole album, you could um, put on in the car on a road trip, and you'll feel like you just skipped in time. It's an which I literally do because I got that cassette. Yeah, I got which the Gaucho Asia double cassette, which is a great great deal. See, for us um, unevolved people like ourselves who have to download the music on our phones so that when we're outside <laughs> of cell phone range, we still are able to listen to Steely Dan. Yeah. Um, you just always have it in the car. You can never lose it. Yep. Well, except that if I leave it in the Southern California heat and it melts, so I got to watch out for that. <laughs> yeah. <there's> that. <laughs> yeah, we're coming to you from a very hot time in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to yeah, shout man. out you. You would probably like this because because uh, my girlfriend recently got me uh, Joe Jackson on cassette, which I know Ethan. You know, I don't know if you've listened to Joe Jackson, but but you are big on jazz and big on the swing and everything. So uh, at some point, we'll have to listen to that. I haven't listened to much Joe Jackson, um, but I am definitely a jazz 
nerd becoming more so every day. And I think in terms of Steely Dan in general, if you like jazz and you like classic rock, there's a good chance you like Steely Dan, or you will like Steely Dan. Oh, the perfect fusion for sure. Um, however, I just have to say, I don't know an artist that is so well-loved and so hated in my household than in, than Steely Dan. No me way. And my dad, Who hates it? Yeah. Me and my dad adore Steely Dan. I absolutely <laughs> love it. My sister and my mom cannot stand to even be in the room with Steely Dan playing. <laughs> That's funny. So That's I was funny. talking to my sister before um, starting this, just letting her know, heads up, hey, I'm recording. Um, and I asked, like, hey, like, can I get can I get like a quote from you? Like, why you don't like Steely Dan? Uh -huh. <laughs> she says, and I quote, it's just the worst. It sounds like <laughs> 70s music that doesn't flow. Like it's just old people music. <laughs> oh my God. And you know, I let the, my mom know oh um, that uh, I was recording today and uh, heard my dad are out camping this weekend. Um, I was like, oh, like, hey, I'm recording the first real episode of the podcast about Steely Dan with Justin. And she only responded with you, period. <laughs> That's funny. I can't, uh, you know, the thing is, I, I realize that it's not for everybody. Um, yeah, it is most definitely not for everyone. And I do feel that, that, you know, when people call it old people music, I do get kind of where they're going with it. But, you know, at, at, at risk of, of sounding, um, of identifying with a, with a very, very, um, criticized internet subculture, I feel a little bit born in the wrong generation. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can understand that, but what's great is that we have access to all this music now that we can all enjoy at the click of a yeah. button. Like it's and there's no reason there. you can't like old stuff and new stuff, you know? And so No, absolutely. There's great stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. Um but it's just a shame that we couldn't have lived through this period with all of these incredible artists coming out with music. Um, well, and and on yeah. a serious note too, I mean it it definitely makes you regret the fact that I mean at this point you we can't see the complete Steely Dan, I mean because of the late Walter Becker, but you know, it definitely yeah. You know, as soon as as soon as the world clears up a little bit, I'm definitely thinking about getting some tickets to see Donald Fagan while I can. You know, I would love to see him perform the Nightfly. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Some final notes on Steely Dan as an artist. They um, they break up after 1980 after the release of Gaucho. I believe it's 82. The Nightfly by Donald Fagan comes out. It's its own project. It just sounds like more Steely Dan. So if you like Steely Dan, check out The Nightfly by Donald Fagan. Yeah. Um, it's pretty critically acclaimed and well accepted, and it's a great album. Um, they do come back later. I believe they start touring again in 93. Um, Becker and Fagan get back together. And then they start um, 
making music again in the 2000s, but unfortunately, Walter Becker is no longer with us. He um he passed away in 2017. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge Which, shame because I would love to, to see music. them. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, the impact, the, you know, the legacy, it's definitely a loss that you can't replace. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but definitely thankful, very grateful for for what what they put out there, what what Walter was able to put out there while he was alive. Yeah, so what they were able to accomplish, yeah. what they were able to come out with. I'm we're all fortunate to be able to listen to all this music. Yep. No, I definitely think so. But yeah, man, do you have any um fi- finishing thoughts? Should we wrap this up? Oh, any final thoughts? Well, I, I think that wraps it up for me. I mean, you know, like like we said, it may not be for everybody, but you should at least give it a try. And, uh, you know, I think that it's definitely worth it to go through Steely Dan's discography. They changed a lot. Absolutely. They evolved a lot. And, uh, you know, like you touched on, Ethan, there's a lot of different kind of phases that they go through or maybe just one major change but you get a lot of evolution in there and i just think that there's a lot to explore so um yeah i'm really grateful that 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 music's out there and that we can listen to and enjoy it and i've really appreciated being on here today because uh you know it's it's pretty great to talk about this stuff so it was a wonder having you man i'm i wouldn't have had any other person on this podcast Aside from Donald Fagan talking about, <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have blamed happy. you for that. I wouldn't have blamed you for yeah. that. <laughs> oh no, I would have kicked you out. It's like, hey, I've got, I've got Donald Fagan right outside. We're about to talk. We're yeah, about to talk yeah. through our masks, but yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I definitely appreciate the, the, the invite because this is a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. Thanks for, um, for making this work and giving me the time to do this with you. Um. For anyone who um, doesn't know Justin, um, he is also a um, a wilderness wildlife filmmaker on the side. You can check out some of his work online if you'd like to shout that out, Justin. Yeah, yeah, you check out YouTube. I got, you know, I mean, definitely very different from what we talked about today. But yeah, if you're into wildlife, yeah. <laughs> nature, that sort of stuff, like, yeah, you can check out my YouTube channel. It's Justin Myrie Productions. Um, the last name is M Y H R E, you know, don't ask me about where this came from or what, you know, it's, it's Scandinavian, but, but you're definitely going to need some spelling help if you're going to look it up on YouTube. So I see, um, Yellowstone double dog. He came out with that five years ago. Um, he did sophomore in high school into it. (laughs) Yeah. But it is super impressive, man. It's 31 minutes. I'm pretty sure you did all of the filming, um, all of the um, uh, voiceover and script and all that, all the editing yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. No, so it's it's mostly my footage and then some, some photos from some local photographers that helped me out and, and of course, some historical stock footage and stuff to give some, some perspective because... Yeah, that that film takes a takes a look at you know the history of wolves in Yellowstone and and then you know a story of a wolf in particular. So uh, yeah, that that seems like an eternity ago now because 
literally was a sophomore in high school and now I'm done with college, but you know, it's still, still something I'm trying to do, something I'm trying to pursue. So, you know, if anyone wants to check out the videos, you know, please do. Yeah, absolutely. His Yellowstone Devil Dog, I'm looking at it now, 951,000 views. <laughs> Very impressive. All right, Thanks, buddy. Man. Well, you take care. All right, Ethan. You too, man. 